0: My uh, first reading this morning is from the uh, book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 53 and verses 1 to 6. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him of us all. The uh, second reading today is uh, the uh, New Testament, 1 Corinthians, chapter 15 and verses 1 to 5. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the Twelve.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me back. Uh, I mean, I know you had nothing to do with that. It's all him. Uh, You you can blame him later. Uh, I said last week that uh, Christians have disagreed on lots of things over the centuries, And um, that is to be lamented. But there is one way to summarize the Christian faith in a way that is um, fair to all the brands of Christianity. I liked how Lily put it a moment ago when we said the Apostles' Creed, that statement of Christian faith, that it goes back across the generations and around the world. Well, that's true. And it's a great way to unpack the Christian faith. And I want to keep doing that by reflecting on stanza two of the Apostles' Creed today. Um, Before we get to stanza two, though, you you may have heard that about 15 years ago, almost 15 years ago, uh, one of the world's most influential atheists announced that he was probably wrong to have argued for his career that there was no God. Anthony Flew is the professor of philosophy at uh, the University of Reading in the UK, And the author of still standard textbooks in universities, uh, in philosophy departments, about the intellectual case for atheism. Uh, His book, The Presumption of Atheism, uh, is still a standard text around the world. But um, about 15 years ago, he announced that he was probably wrong in all those arguments, and he published another book uh, just just titled There Is a God, subtitled How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. I'm sure that was a publisher's subtitle. It doesn't sound like the sort of thing Professor Flew would have come up with. Um, But he published his doubts about atheism, and uh, as the book unpacks, it's clear that that what changed his mind was a rediscovery of the most ancient versions of the arguments for God from Aristotle, which um, he admits he had never really given his full attention, uh, really focusing on sort of modern philosophy. Combined with uh, the new discoveries about the fundamental laws of physics that are operating from the smallest particle to the outer reaches of the cosmos, and new discoveries about the mathematical uh, elegance in the DNA code. And he said, these two things have convinced me that there must be mind behind matter. Uh, that's the only way he could explain it. In his own very nerdy way, he said, there exists a self-existent, immutable, immaterial, omnipotent, and omniscient being. It's just a way of saying God. Uh, now, of course, Christians were jubilant, claiming him as a convert. Some naughty atheists claimed that the poor guy had gone senile, and that is why he'd come to lose his faculties and believe in God. But neither was true. He'd just joined the common sense ranks of the majority of humanity throughout time that there must be some kind of eternal, immaterial mind behind the universe. He'd just come to accept the opening stanza of the Apostles' Creed that we reflected on last week, that I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And as I said last week, what this means is that God is not like a magical wardrobe hidden in one of the rooms of the house of creation. God is more like the architect of the house in the first place. God is not an object in the universe you'll ever find. You're waving back at you. But everything about the universe speaks of the orderliness and brilliance of the eternal mind, all of which raises an obvious question. And it's a question Antony Flew himself wondered out loud in his famous book, the question is how could we know what the creator is really like? I mean, sure, you can work out that there is an architect by looking at the design of the house. Uh, just like you can work out there must have been a director of a beautifully shot film, but you can't know the architect and you can't know the director. You can know that they exist but not what they are actually like how could you know what the architect of a house was like unless she turned up at your house one day and invited herself in for a cup of tea how could you know what the director of a film was really like unless the director i don't know inserted himself into the film like martin Scorsese does often in his films and, of course, these are just analogies. How could you know what God is really like unless God stepped out of eternity into history to show himself to us? And this is why the Apostles' Creed, universally accepted by Christians, stresses the centrality of Jesus Christ, uh, what is the first thing we notice when we compare the second stanza with the first? I mean, it's, it's blindingly obvious, isn't it? It's really long. <laughs> it's really long. I mean, by comparison, you know, look, uh, just those few words describe the origins of the universe, and then you get all of these words about uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ is central, five times longer than the first stanza. Um, I said last week that in the original language of the creed, which was Greek, um, the whole creed is 83 words. 56 of them are about Jesus Christ. That lays a tremendous stress on. On the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Christianity doesn't present a vague theism, a vague sense of this mind behind the universe. No, it focuses on Jesus Christ. And although I'm describing these as two stanzas, actually they hang off one verb I believe. I believe in God, you know, the eternal creator, and, it says, and Jesus Christ. Which, again, lays a tremendous emphasis on Jesus Christ. There is no version of Christianity that doesn't deal with the person of Jesus Christ. He is central. And the reason for this centrality of Jesus Christ is that, He teaches not just that God exists, but what God is really like. In Jesus Christ, the claim is God stepped out of eternity into our history. Into our history. This is my second point. The core of the Christian faith isn't philosophy it isn't rituals, it isn't really religion on the normal definition of religion. Christianity is premised on a series of actual events that took place in time and space. That's why so much of that second stanza is about stuff that's meant to have happened. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, buried. These are events in the world, allegedly. And right in the middle of the creed, is this really weird reminder of how historical, earthly, the Christian faith actually is. Um, Amidst the lofty themes of creation, um, judgment, forgiveness of sins, um, eternal life, amidst all those lofty themes, you get a very odd mention of a Roman governor. The central creed of Christianity gets everyone mentioning a secular Roman prefect from the years 26 to 36 in Judea. A prefect we can pinpoint precisely, partly because he very kindly left an inscription to himself on the coast of Israel where he mentions his role as prefect of Judea. Uh, suddenly we're in the realm of history. This is an odd aspect of the Christian faith, And, and it's one that if you're a Christian a long time, you can get a little too used to, but this is weird compared to the other faiths of the world. The center of the faith is a series of events of an actual life that took place while Pontius Pilate was governor of the boondocks of the Roman Empire, known as... Judea. Christianity is anchored in history. Christianity is not based on a lone spiritual insight or a philosophical speculation or even the words of divine dictation in a holy book. The basis of the Christian faith is a verifiable history. Between the years 26 and 36, while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. I'm not saying everything in the life of Jesus can be verified, but I'm saying that the broad thrust of that life is demonstrably a real life of the first century. And the Christian claim that we're to get our head around is that this is God who has stepped out of eternity into history. (laughs) into a genuine history that is not, you know, the kind of story of Middle Earth where all the hobbits live. It's the history of the Middle East where Pontius Pilate governed. That's where God stepped onto the human stage in a way we can all explore. Now, reflection on this point led Anthony Flew to wonder out loud whether this was the X marks the spot of God's interaction with the world. He didn't say he came to believe it. Let me make that clear. But he did offer an appendix in his book where he invited one of the world's leading New Testament historians to write an account of the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from a historical point of view. And you might wonder, what on earth is a leading atheist doing, inviting you know, a Christian world authority on the resurrection to write a historical account of the uh, of the evidence? Basically, Anthony Flew said, if there is a true religion, this has to be it. This is the one that seems to have touched the earth in a tangible way. I don't know if it's true, he said. But if any of them is true, it's this one. Uh, in his own words, he said... If you're wanting omnipotence to set up a religion, it seems to me that this is the one to beat. It's a delightful way of putting it. The centrality of Jesus Christ. The history that grounds it all. But, of course, it's not just history. And the claim of Christianity is not that Jesus Christ lived just like Pontius Pilate lived. The claim is that in this life, and in particular in this death and resurrection, we find God's own offer of amnesty. Amnesty. God's willingness to forgive and forget. Will you notice what the creed makes the center of the center? Okay, I've said Jesus is the center. 56 words of the 83 are all about Jesus Christ. But then look at what the creed really emphasizes Christ's suffering, death, burial, and resurrection. Do you notice that? Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, buried, descended to the dead, third day rose again from the dead. Now, I find this um, remarkable because the creation of the universe got 10 words in the original of the Apostles' Creed, just 10 words, and three days in Jesus' ministry get 20 words. Whole universe, 10 words. Just three days, 20 words. Which tells you that Christianity deliberately, across all denominations, for as long as we know about Christianity, Christianity has zeroed in, slowed right down on Jesus' arrest, trial, crucifixion, burial, resurrection. Why? Well, we know why. Because Christians say this is how we know the amnesty of God, the forgiveness of God. Um, our New Testament reading uh, from 1 Corinthians 15 says exactly what this creed is saying. I mean, uh, the creed is actually very biblical in the way it's designed, it's trying to emphasize the very things the Bible emphasizes. But here is the Apostle Paul saying, what is the thing of most importance or first importance in the Christian faith? And here it is. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Kephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. By the way, um, for the historical nerds in the building, this is the oldest Christian statement we can date. As secular ancient historians will say that thi- this little paragraph I've put on the screen can be dated to within months or maybe just a few years of the events themselves. In ancient history, this is about as good as it gets. I got to handle the oldest physical manuscript of this very paragraph. Uh, some years ago. They are my little white-handed gloves there on the, on the screen holding this very uh, precious fragment. Anyway, that's just for free this morning. Um, my, my point is uh, the most important thing to know about Jesus, about Christianity, isn't his wonderful ethical teaching as world-changing as that was. It isn't his miracles as extraordinary as they are. It is that he suffered, died, was buried, rose, and was seen alive. For our sins, the Apostle Paul puts it. Or as the parable will, uh, sorry, rather the Apostles' Creed in the third stanza will say, the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, Do you remember last week I reflected on that wonderful story Jesus told um, called the parable of the prodigal son, in in which he's trying to depict for his audience what what he thinks of as the sinner. And we saw last week that the, the sinner in the parable is this young son who wants everything the father has to give him, but then doesn't want anything to do with the father. He says, give me my inheritance. The father gives it to him. And then he nicks off to a foreign land and spends it on himself. And as I pointed out last week, this is a perfect picture of what the Bible thinks is the fundamental sin. It is wanting the gifts of creation and not wanting the giver. But actually, Jesus told this parable not to illustrate sin only, but to illustrate amnesty, the forgiveness, the welcome of God, because the parable goes on to say, while he was still a long way off, this young son, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Now, here's the thing that that is really important to convey. Jesus told this hypothetical to illustrate his mission, what God the Father is really like. God the Father wants to welcome sinners, wants to welcome prodigals, despite the profound offense of reveling in the gifts and ignoring the giver, all who turn back to God freely forgiven. And Jesus' picture of God, I think, is is marvelous. God, according to Jesus, at the first sign of turning about, We'll run, embrace, kiss. God is into amnesty. And, of course, Jesus told this parable precisely because he knew within months of telling this parable, he would die to bear our wrongs. That in his death, burial, and resurrection, he absorbed into himself that judgment, the creed goes on to say, will be upon any who do not turn back to God for forgiveness. But Jesus took that into himself so that this parable can be a reality. It's not just a hypothetical. It is the very heartbeat of the Christian faith, amnesty. Now, I have an embarrassing admission to offer uh, this morning. I always feel a little bit uncomfortable sharing this. But um, while I was studying to be a minister at Moore College, I slept for two years with an illegal, unregistered, semi-automatic rifle underneath my bed it was a gift from a farmer out at Gilgandra where I preached a, a little mission out there. And this farmer was so touched by, you know, the gospel that he came uh, at, the, at the end of the mission and, and presented me this gift. Now, often, um, you know, I, I might speak somewhere and I'll, I'll get, I don't know, coasters or book voucher, in really snazzy churches, bottle of wine. That's not a hint. Um, But, you know, in Gilgandra, apparently the going rate is semi-automatic rifles and about 200 rounds of ammunition. Now, the thing is, I was not into shooting, but I didn't want to embarrass this delightful farmer, so I accepted the gift very gratefully and, of course, then had to drive home I was living in Surrey Hills. I was a student at Moore College. And my, my wife, who's far more sensible than I, uh, was a little bit disturbed by this gift and, and, and said, look, we, can't just ha- we just can't have it in the house. You have to get rid of it straight away. But I, I lived in Surrey Hills. How do you get rid of a semi-automatic rifle? Right? You can't put it out with the recycling. There aren't that many parks. You can go in the middle of the night and bury it. So I just said, darling, let's just keep it under the bed and we'll work it out. Well, it stayed there for two years, through my training at Moore College, studying to be a minister. And I, I was, you know, genuinely concerned that if I ever tried to get rid of it and I was caught, that wouldn't look so good on my ministerial record. I'm sure Matt would agree. Um, but then the federal government announced Do you remember this? the National Firearm Amnesty. And uh, according to the advertising, if you owned an illegal or unregistered rifle, mine was both, you could come into any police station, hand it over, no questions asked. That's what they said, no questions asked. Now, at the time, um, I didn't think it was real. I thought it was just a way of getting you into the police station. Um, And, you know, they'd have you on file. And again, I didn't think a firearms offence would look good as a training Anglican minister. Um, So although Buff said to me, please, darling, take it in, take it in, I just said, no, no, let's just wait and see. Let's see if we hear stories. Anyway, the amnesty was for six months only, and I got right up to within the last week. And eventually she said, darling, you have to take this in. So at that point I did the manly thing, and of course I sent her in (laughs) with the rifle (laughs) on my behalf. It just seemed safer. <laughs> now, the reason I'm telling you this long winded story, <laughs> true story, is that it turns out the amnesty was for real. She walked into the police station. We had a little toddler at the, at the time. So it must look really funny this gorgeous young mum with toddler and semi automatic rifle and a bag of ammo walks into the Surrey Hills police station. hands it over, and the policeman just smiled knowingly. I'm sure she wasn't the only wife who'd done this on behalf of the husband. And um, he just waved her off. She turned around. She she, she came back out. she, She came home. And I am the grateful recipient of the federal government's willingness to forgive and forget. I can confess this to you, this highly irregular interlude in my ministerial career, without the slightest fear of punishment. Because that's what an amnesty does. In fact, you no doubt know amnesty comes from the Greek word amnesia, amnesia. It means forgetting, (laughs) forgetting. Um, I hope this is not too clunky a gear change, but God is in the business of forgiving and forgetting and has done the most extraordinary thing to forgive and forget and of course i must add you can't send your partner on your behalf to god for this amnesty right you can't just say ah oh, you know my wife has gone to church for years i'll be safe mm. you can't say ah oh, you know my parents went or my children are really into it doesn't work like that The Christian faith invites everyone individually to come like the prodigal son and seek the mercy of God. And in that context, God will forgive and forget because of Christ's death and resurrection. This is the heart of the heart of the Christian faith. So, this universally agreed Apostles' Creed stresses the centrality of Jesus Christ. Vague God-fearing is not Christianity. We deal with Jesus Christ. And this creed stresses that this is history, not La La Land, The life of Jesus is not itself a parable of the spiritual life. It's actual, factual history. And above all that, it is the amnesty that God offers us all. For me, as a 16-year-old who had never been inside a church, there was a turning point. I asked my Mossman High School scripture teacher, a very dangerous question. I said, what do you think God thinks of me? I made sure none of my mates was watching me talk to her. I didn't want them to think I was going to catch any religion, but she was so intriguing. I had to ask her, what does God think of me? And I will never forget, she said, John, God sees everything you've done said and thought." She left a really awkward pause and I remember thinking, oh no, that's not good. And then she said, but he loves you even still. I thanked her for the words I shot out into the playground. I tried to forget those words but they stayed with me. God sees everything and loves me. And if I'm honest, that is, humanly speaking, the door opening for me into the possibility, into the reality that God will forgive and forget, loves those who have defied him, and has entered into history through Jesus Christ to grant you and me amnesty. Let me pray. So, Lord, please, will you help us? Gather all these thoughts together, perhaps reject what is distracting, but help us to think clearly, but also um, humbly, being aware of our own bias and preconceptions and experiences. Lord, will you please help every one of us realize for the first time or afresh the centrality of Jesus Christ? this is history and the precious offer of your amnesty. In Jesus' name, amen.
2: Thanks, Holly. I'm going to invite John to come up, and uh, we've just got a few minutes for questions. Thanks for those who've uh, texted in your questions. Uh, John, thanks again for uh, sharing. Earlier in the year, we weren't sure even... If we're going to be able to have this in person, and here we are, it's been fantastic. So thank you for sharing with us. Um, You ready for some questions? Excellent. First question is this: How do we prove that Jesus is divine, and that in Him God stepped out of divinity?
1: Well, if you're dealing with someone who you know uh, is into evidence, um, you you have to begin with, I think, the um, arguments on behalf of God's existence. Um, which I, I think are powerful. And then the question, of course, is which is more likely, given the universe we live in, where not only are there elegant laws from the particles to the outer reaches of the cosmos, but minds have developed in this universe that now understand those laws. That looks like a setup. So the question is, what's more likely, that the source of all things is interested in getting our attention or not? And it seems to me obvious the former is the case. A universe where minds have grown up to detect that there must be a mind behind it, uh, that's a universe in which that mind, there's a good chance that mind will have touched the earth in some way that we could all look at uh, and demonstrate. Okay, so then you're left with what uh, evidence is there on the world stage that God has touched the earth in a tangible way. I don't just mean a claim. I don't just mean someone had a dream sometime. Uh, Someone had a philosophical insight. Someone had a mystical vision or something. I mean something tangible, something that you don't have to believe first in order to see might be plausible. And and it seems to me you are only left with the events of Jesus Christ, where there is an overwhelming um, body of evidence that the broad outline of what's in the Gospels really happened. I mean, this is a, this is a huge discipline in ancient history. Uh, there are whole university courses you can do on the life of Jesus precisely because this is not like discussing, you know, the adventures of Zeus or, uh, or the Iliad or whatever. There's nothing there to, to investigate. But in the case of Jesus, there's an enormous body of evidence that leads even quite secular-minded historians to think that, there's, that, that we do have the kind of evidence you'd expect, not only that Jesus lived, but if he did healings, and certainly that he died and was buried, but even that people from the very beginning found an empty tomb and thought they actually saw him alive. We have evidence for all of that using the normal rules of historical investigation. Now, I'm not saying you can therefore prove that the whole show you know, the, is true, but I am saying, isn't it spooky that there's just one claim in, in, in the history of humanity that looks like it really happened. That is, an X marks the spot of God's touching the earth. So if you begin with this idea, is it plausible? Is it likely that God would touch the earth in a tangible way? And you answer, yeah, that's likely, but where's the evidence? You have one example that isn't just a dream, that isn't just a divine dictation in a holy book, that is a series of events that you can explore objectively and think, oh, my goodness, we have the evidence you'd expect if this really happened. So something like that would be would be the way I'd approach it. Thanks.
2: I've got another question here about the amnesty you talked about. Thank you, John. Is it important to seek forgiveness every day?
1: Uh, Well, let me say, um, you may uh, find yourself not defying God's ways every day, but I find myself defying God's ways every day. So is it appropriate? For me, yes. But for those who are no longer defying God's way in any way, no. That sound right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's good.
1: Uh, Which is, I, I should clarify, I don't mean you slip in and out of God's amnesty, right? I mean, in some ways, it's like a marriage relationship. Um, you know, I'm married now. I'm i I'm am in this bond, this vow uh, with my wife. But when I muck up, I've been a jerk and I've been grumpy or whatever, is it appropriate to apologise or not? Of course it is. It doesn't mean that I've slipped out of being married to her, but it's just right in the context of that relationship that I would apologise. And it's the same. Once you have experienced the amnesty of God, you're like the prodigal who has come home, you're welcomed home. Well, then it's just right that when
2: you mark up, you apologise. All right. Um, probably got time for one more question. Uh, Josh Harris led a mega church where I used to live, wrote books, preached then turned away from faith. Does that prove as much as one atheist becoming a theist?
1: Well, it depends um, what, you, what you mean by prove. Um, what does it prove? I mean, it demonstrates that human beings are complex human beings and that our reasons for believing or rejecting are equally complex. I doubt very much that Harris's reasons for slipping away from the faith were intellectual. Um, but I, I can make pretty clear that uh, in the case of um, Antony Flew, they were intellectual only to the point of believing that there must be some kind of God. To be clear, he didn't become a Christian, so far as I know. But He, he just came to believe, just like Aristotle believed, on philosophical grounds there must be a God. That was a kind of intellectual process. Um, but I have seen a, a number of people walk away from the faith And it is almost never intellectual only. It's a combination of intellectual, it's moral, as in there's something I want to do that my faith doesn't let me do. So that cognitive dissonance can only be resolved by my diminishing the importance of my faith. And you take a little step in that direction and it seems more plausible to diminish the faith even more. You take another step in that direction and before you know it, you look back and you've traveled a long, long way. But I will admit that becoming a Christian involves more than the intellect. I think you can demonstrate that God exists and that the broad life of Jesus uh, is a factual historical story without any faith. That is just an intellectual thing. But you, but you won't develop genuine trust in God's amnesty without more than the intellect. The intellect only gets you so far. It is, there's a whole bunch of experiences and preferences and assumptions that lead us toward and,
0: yes, away from the faith.